The first reading is from Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and it's page 955, those following in the Pew Bibles. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son, Zion, against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. The second reading is taken from St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, reading verses 1 to 10. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a cold outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that coat? They answered as Jesus had told them, as had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to, to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Well, thank you very much, Valerie and Christopher, for reading to us. If you have a Bible open, you might want to keep it open at uh, page 1015, that reading we've just had for uh, Palm Sunday. Let me lead us in prayer with those words before us. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. We want to pray that you would be at work in our minds, Heavenly Father, to honor Jesus as those crowds did at at Palm Sunday, uh, to honor humbly and to worship our God, to bow before him 
And that is uh, a miracle that we can't pull off by our own efforts. We pray you would enlighten our minds to know him better, to love him more, and to follow him the more faithfully. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. My uh, verse to encapsulate what that reading um, was all about, the whole passage in Mark 10, is from the end of it. I suppose verse 10 will do for the cries that were said there. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In the evening services recently, we've been looking at the visions in the second half of Daniel. Um, Not the bits we're all familiar with, the fiery furnace and the writing on the wall and the lion's den and so on, but the vivid pictures in prophetic vision of the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms. And if you're familiar with them, you'll be familiar with the savage beasts and those little horns that speak boastfully and suppress the truth and attack the saints. And that series in the evening, to me, has been fascinating as a little commentary for us on the war in Ukraine and the destructive potential for evil deeds when power is in the wrong hands. It reminded me of reading some time ago about an earlier radio address from nearly 100 years ago by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. At the time, he was still a young professor. The broadcast happened live at the German Broadcasting Company on February the 1st, 1933, just a day after Hitler was confirmed as Chancellor. And towards the end, the script of the broadcast contained a chilling warning for anyone with ears to hear. If a leader surrenders to the wishes of his followers, who always want to make him their idol, then the image of the leader will gradually become the image of the misleader. And it reads slightly better in German, I'm told. The Führer becomes the Wehrführer. But... Bonhoeffer discovered on leaving the studio that his last sentences hadn't been broadcasted. Somebody in the studio had just, I live in fear of this when I'm preaching, just turned the microphone down on him as he was speaking. And obviously the last bit of the, the, uh, the address was lost, therefore not broadcast. So as early as 1933, Hitler had indeed become the misleader feeding his supporters with his version of the truth and suppressing all dissenting voices. Now, Bonhoeffer wrote down what he'd said, so we have it, and that was the type of principal protest that went on to cost him his life in 1945. As I said, the parallel between Hitler and earthly leaders since then is striking. But actually what caught my eye in the quotation was a throwaway line, not about the leader but about the led. In other words, those who follow their leader. Followers always want to make leaders into an idol, Bonhoeffer was saying. That was the point he was making. And that's what gives bogus leaders their power, he thought. So he was warning the younger generation in Germany not to make Hitler into their savior. Now, long introduction. The question it raises for me on Palm Sunday is this. What kind of kingdom do we want to live and if need be die for what kind of kingdom 
do we want to give our lives for? Or to phrase it slightly differently, what kind of king, what kind of saviour do we choose? In the last week of Jesus' life, we are presented with a clash of kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms, like the brute force of Rome, or you might add nationalistic religious institutions like the Pharisees on the ruling council in Jerusalem. That side, against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As our verse puts it, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. When Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem, the leaders just about cope with him because he's not so much of a threat when he's not there. But now he's heading into Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there isn't room both for him and those other kingdoms. And somebody we're being prepared for will have to be got rid of. And that raises a question for us as bystanders. Who will we throw our lot in with? Will we give our allegiance to the true king or to one or other of his rivals? And we easily place our hopes in them, earthly saviors, instead of the one who really can be a savior and king for us. So in that short section, we're given a chance to identify the genuine king as the king enters his capital city riding on a donkey. What do we learn about God's kingdom? in those 10 verses that Val read to us. I'm going to crystallize it down to two things, I think. First, it is a predicted kingdom. A predicted kingdom. Now, we've got an election happening in France, which I'm following with some interest today, or the start of the election there. Predictions in human politics are notoriously unreliable when the polls are out. When the predictive polls come in before an election, usually you take them with a pinch of salt. They have a margin of error attached to them, don't they? Because if you think about it, they don't just report people's voting intentions. They influence them. They encourage some neutrals to join the majority. They discourage others from casting a vote if they think it might not count for much. All sorts of different sort of things happen. So the predictions are unreliable. But when it comes to God's kingdom, God's predictions in the Bible throughout the course of the Old Testament, if you think about it, those predictions are a certainty. He will never have to revise them. And this entry into Jerusalem was, on the basis of all those predictions, certain to happen. There are one or two musts on the lips of Jesus as he talks about his future from the earlier vantage point in his life, things that must happen. And the entry into Jerusalem is one of those. He says, every prophet dies in Jerusalem. I've got to go there. And the other musts are things like he must be betrayed, must be condemned, must be mocked, must be killed. Then after three days, he must must be raised. So those predictions he was very conscious of They were certain to be fulfilled. Now, this idea of prediction lies beneath the surface of Mark's record here, and it it makes the event stand out as a big deal. And I don't know whether you think of Palm Sunday as a big deal, but I think you have to say it is a a central event. You'll know the the four accounts of Jesus' life, the Gospels, 
they all record his entry into Jerusalem. And actually, it's only rarely that all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all report some event. I wonder if you can run a little checklist in your mind if you know the Gospels well. There aren't many events that each of the Gospels include, and it highlights their importance. I don't know whether you had in your checklist the baptism of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, the crucifixion, and the entry to Jerusalem is right up there. That's just about all. There might be one. If you've got others, I'd be interested to hear them. Um, but the fact that they all converge on this is a central thing. We can't leave this out, they're saying. Tells you that it's a big event. No portrait of Jesus is complete without it. And why do they think so? Well, one answer must be that God had deliberately drawn attention to it down the centuries by giving numerous advance warnings that it would happen. And this idea of predictions is why there are so many seemingly insignificant details in the story. Normally, Mark, we're looking at his account today, as a writer, is very economical. Unless something is really important, he leaves it out. But you've got all sorts of funny things here. Just look down at the passage again. I mean, verse 2 is an example. All this sort of preamble beforehand. Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one's ever written, ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? You've got the whole conversation in advance. Say the Lord needs it, and it will be send, send it back here so, shortly. And then, just in case you need to have that refresher, verse 4, let's do it again. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway as they untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. It's very unmarked to do that, to give you a preamble about it and then a refresher of it uh, where you rehearse those sorts of details. That's not his normal style of writing. What's the big deal about the palm branches being spelt out, um, laid on the ground, waved, and so on? Well, Mark puts them in because in tiny, insignificant details the predictions of the Messiah were being fulfilled. And if you ask what predictions behind the palm branches, one of the pilgrim psalms that people sang as they arrived in Jerusalem for the festivals had that line about joining the festival procession with bows in hand. We had great fun at the 9.30 service waving palm branches, as it were. So they had a hymn in the Old Testament hymn book which fitted with the occasion exactly. It was perfect for a Passover celebration. That sort of prediction of a subtle kind. Behind the untying of the colt, there was a prediction of a ruler of Judah made by Jacob, way back in Genesis chapter 49. The most obvious prophecy is connected with the colt. That's from uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. We had it as our first reading. Spoken 550 years before ever Christ came to Jerusalem. Um, Mark doesn't quote from it as the other gospel writers do, but there's no doubt he's aware of it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, 
gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Do you think that Jesus, after flogging around on foot all over the country for three years, needed to ride the last three miles into Jerusalem? Of course not. He did it to fit in with the predictions of how God's king would come to Jerusalem. So for those who had eyes to see it, Jesus was saying, wake up. God hasn't abandoned you. His promises in the prophets are all being fulfilled. All those unsatisfied longings of so many centuries are at last being met. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. I am the king. I'm the one you're waiting for. I like that story about the evangelist J. John talking to a Jewish person and going over all the predictions of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, one by one with them, how the one to come would be a son of David in that royal family, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, rejected. His clothes would be gambled for. His side would be pierced. His bones would be unbroken. He'd be killed between two thieves and so on. And then all innocently, the evangelist J. John asked, asked this Jewish guy, does that remind you of anyone? I know you might be tempted to say, well, Jesus simply cheated. He knew the Messianic predictions and then deliberately he fulfilled them. He organized the, the, the donkey on this occasion, for example. He just notched up the predictions one by one. But of course, in plenty of situations, he couldn't have engineered events to fulfill the prophecies. Two examples um, I thought of completely outside his control. He couldn't choose to be born of a virgin, nor could he make sure his legs weren't broken after he died on the cross. So some, yes, he chose to follow a path, but plenty were predictions that God had predicted uh, in the Old Testament that he had no specific control over in one sense. Yes, if he chose to fulfill the details, particularly of the Messiah at times, that was simply his way of saying, I am choosing to go the way the Father has planned for me. Now, it's rather a long journey through the the, the idea of prediction, but I think the take-home significance for us surely is this. It's to boost our confidence that Jesus really does have the central place in God's plan. You and I are meant to leave church today without a shred of doubt that Jesus is God's king. And that means that you and I are not going to be the losers by throwing in our lot with him. His is a predicted kingdom. However, at the same time, we've got to acknowledge another thing about Jesus' kingdom, and it's this. It is a puzzling kingdom as well, or raises questions, or doesn't look like what we'd expect. I'm trying to find a a way of of making that point. Clearly people recognize some aspects of his kingdom in the way Jesus enters Jerusalem, but they don't grasp the whole truth. If Jesus is the king of a kingdom, then it is a very odd kingdom. He's a king quite unlike any other king they know. 
to some extent, of course, Jesus was playing to the gallery. It was as a, as public, as a public event. It was there for everyone to see that this was a big occasion. He timed his arrival in Jerusalem for maximum impact when all the pilgrims were flooding into Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, 30 years after the event that we're reading about, Josephus, who's a, a Jewish historian, put the number at 2.7 million in his day in Jerusalem for the Passover. So it was a, a big occasion. Jesus' birth had gone largely unnoticed. Later on, nobody present at the moment of the resurrection. But at this point, his entry to Jerusalem, maximum coverage is being given. Everybody invited to recognize that Jesus is their king. And the songs make that clear as well. Thank God that David's son has come at last. Glory to God in the highest. The fact that Jesus rides in is appointed to his status. Normally pilgrims walked in the last few miles. But riding a donkey? It's not just recently since A.A. Milne that um, Eeyore makes us all think of donkeys as faintly ridiculous. Uh, No, where else would you hear of a king with a worldwide empire riding a donkey? It's traveling second class to go that way. Zechariah had predicted it, but this is millions of miles away from normal normal kingly status travel, isn't it? Certainly millions of miles away from the Roman pattern. In Rome, processions were normally military, and you can never imagine... um, this sort of thing happened. Can you imagine a, a Roman officer galloping up to check on what on earth this disturbance that's going on in Jerusalem is all about as Jesus makes his entry? Maybe this Roman officer has been to triumphal processions in Rome where they do it properly, um, where you've got a general sitting in a chariot of gold pulled by amazing white stallions or something. They're all straining at the reins, and behind you've got officers in polished armor carrying flags and the banners of all the captured armies. Behind them, you might have a ragbag collection of defeated slaves and prisoners, which is sort of living proof of what happens if you take on the might of Rome. And what does our centurion find here as he investigates what this disturbance is in Jerusalem? Lots of people, for sure, but no splendor, no polished armor, just peasants. And he's scratching his head, wondering who's the center of attention here? That man on a donkey, that made me laugh. But that is how Jesus was so often in his life. It's very puzzling, God's kingdom, judged by this world's standards, often unimpressive. God's way up is down. The Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve in a lowly fashion. So he was born in a borrowed stable. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and here he rides into his capital city on a borrowed donkey. The Lord has need of somebody else's donkey for this occasion. And that puzzle, it seems to me, is an important lesson for all of us. Maybe at times we're embarrassed by the fact that uh, Christians are so often rather unimpressive with drab buildings, slightly dated music. Well, in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, Jesus was ludicrously unimpressive. And God's kingdom purposes aren't 
apparently serves in the way we would treat our celebrities by Cadillacs, a ticker tape parade, whatever it might be. Equally, that Zechariah quotation explains why he comes on a donkey, not a war horse. That's different, isn't it? If Christ's kingdom was measured by acres and spread by armies, he might well come on a war horse, but it's not. Jesus came to bring rescue, not revolution. So, says Zechariah, he's come righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. There are other aspects to the puzzle as well. What about the interchange between the two disciples and the owners of the donkey that we've, uh, we've mentioned already? Jesus sends that message, the Lord needs the donkey, which I suppose was an arrangement he'd made, could have been like a password to them. And the bystanders, the owners, take that to mean that God has earmarked the donkey for sacred purposes. But on Jesus' lips... There's a puzzle, it's a deeper meaning, surely, which people only get later on. He's Lord and Master of the donkey and of the nation and of the world. Of course he can lay claim to the donkey. But it's subtle, isn't it? Ditto the songs they sang, ditto the palms. They all fit with Jesus having a victory procession and Jesus does nothing to silence them. But equally, he doesn't seem to need too much to encourage him either. He's not unmistakably king, not yet. Hence the puzzle that underlies all of this. He's powerful, but he enters Jerusalem in weakness. In fact, within a week, he'll die in weakness. He won't assert his rule straight away because he comes to save. Now, it's time for us to conclude, but put those two points together which we've seen about the coming kingdom, which everybody was celebrating. It was a predicted kingdom, and God's predictions always come good, but also a puzzling kingdom, because it isn't going to surrender to our conceptions, our idols, our timetable. How much better that that is the case. Put those two together. He really can be our leader, not our misleader. It's a very different kingdom from the empires and powers in our world. He doesn't baptize our agendas. He doesn't accede to all our wishes. In fact, in entering Jerusalem on a donkey and not evicting the Romans or finally purifying the temple at a stroke of the corrupt religion of the day, he did what we really needed. He provided salvation from sin, not liberation from the Romans. And the fact that his entry was predicted tells us that all the other predictions that focus on him will be fulfilled. He will return in glory as king. He will overthrow evil, even if there's enough suffering in our world today to leave us groaning for that day. The end will come. There is hope. We will not be the loser by following him, even if there are puzzles to his kingdom. And that makes his entry as king, to me at least, even more worth celebrating for us than the crowds who knew only the half-truth at that stage. Let's close in prayer. Lord, many of us come with 
questions in our minds, even thinking about this event at the safe distance of 2,000 years on. The puzzle of your kingdom is something that uh, causes us confusion. We pray that you would enlighten our minds to know you better, and we pray you'd fill our lives and our lips and our hearts with worship of Jesus, that we would be loyal to him and praise him as we grow in our understanding and our love of him. We thank you that his kingdom is not in doubt, that what you've promised you will fulfill, and we pray you'd give us confidence to own him as our king. We ask it, Father, for the honor and glory of Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus knew exactly what was uh, approaching him in Jerusalem, uh, that promised kingdom, that puzzling kingdom, and yet he rode on towards the cross. And our final hymn is a celebration of that determination to ride on, ride on, that stand and sing. Take 
we remain standing a final prayer. May the Father, who so loved the world that he gave his only Son, bring us by faith to his eternal life. May Christ, who accepted the cup of sacrifice in obedience to the Father's will, keep us steadfast as we walk with him in the way of the cross. And may the Spirit, who strengthens us to suffer with Christ, that we may share his glory, set our minds on life and peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always. Amen.